0: Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself.
1: Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC experience hilarious talks comedy specials and feel-good films with your fan favorite comedians like hannah einbinder judd apatow neil patrick harris take notaro and more you have to be there get your tickets now at tribecafilm.com
0: hey folks so this is a quick addendum to this show uh this interview with edward norton which i loved it was so fun um and then got trapped in what appears to have been a, some kind of catastrophic technical failure, which we haven't even fully untangled. But it led to this show not making it into most people's feeds. So that, that cannot stand. That aggression cannot stand. It was too, it was too good of an episode. So we're releasing it. Um, if you did get it the first time and you listened to it, this is not different. Uh, it is the, the one you heard. But if you did not get it, it is different and will change everything for you. So I hope you enjoy.
2: The mind just does amazing things in quiet, like it left to its own devices. And it's so weird that it's also antagonistic to the process of getting quiet.
0: Hello, welcome to The Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, let me get the announcements out of the way first. If you're not checking out Impeachment Explained, my every Saturday podcast about impeachment, I think you should. Uh, you can subscribe to it wherever you subscribe to your podcast, but I'm really happy with how it's going, actually. I think we're being able to dig into some parts of that story that need to be dug into. So I hope you come join us over there. Um, but with that said, today's episode of The Ezra Klein Show, very much not about impeachment, is a bit different. We've got Edward Norton on the show. Uh, you may know Edward Orne from such films as Fight Club and American History X. Uh, but right now, he's got a new one coming out called Motherless Brooklyn. And you guys know I don't do uh, actors all the time or even all that often on this show. But here's the thing. Motherless Brooklyn is one of my favorite books of all time. It is a book by Jonathan Lethem. Uh, it is amazing. It's, it's. I say this in the interview, but it is a book I read, I don't know, a decade ago now, more, I guess more. And... I think about a couple lines from it every month, maybe every two months. I can't say that for for that many books. And in adapting it, Norton has changed it dramatically. He wrote the adaptation, he directs it, and he stars in it. So he's, his fingerprints are really all over this one. And he's playing with ideas that are the very reason I loved the initial book so much and that I think made this really an amazing conversation for the show. Ideas about the mind, about Buddhism, about what happens when we can't control ourselves, about power, about race, about urban planning. Uh, There's a ton in here. And Noren himself is just like a fascinating polymathic guy. He's a startup investor and in all kinds of things, ranging from like the big, like Uber, to he's the founder of a media analytics company, which is not something I would have expected from him. We have a great conversation about it. But so I wanted to do this one in particular, and it turned out just great. It was a total blast to talk to him, and I think you all are going to really enjoy it. As always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here is Edward Norton. Edward Norton, welcome to the show. Thanks.
2: So when did you first read Molos Brooklyn*? I read it in galleys before it came out, um, I'm going to date myself and it, by noting that it was a Xerox, <laughs> it was a Xerox copy, there had never been a PDF at that point, and so I had a um, a clip-bound Xerox of the galleys of it, that's when I read it, so it had to have been late 98 or early 99, I would guess.
0: How did you get a Xeroxed copy of it?
2: Jonathan and I had mutual friends, and um, I was at a party in the village in New York, and Someone was like, oh, yeah, we were talking about writers. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, Jonathan, you know, Jonathan Leatham, he's friends with I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. They said um, he has this new book coming out about a Tourettec detective who has to, like, use his crazy brain to solve the murder of his mentor and only friend. And I was like, you had me at Tourettec. (laughs) Um, But I chased it down. I chased it down and I got I got a hold of it and read it. What did you see in it when you read it? What was it about to you?
0: And I should say like I love this book. Yeah. It's one of the rare books that um, like, I think about every well, month. Well,
2: d- let tell me if you relate to this analogy cuz um when I think about like The Catcher in the a Catcher in the Rye and Holden Caulfield it's like why does that land in people so hard, right? It it's because Holden is telling you his own story and because Holden's telling you his story you identify and empathize immediately. And then as you begin to catch on to the fact that he says a lot of stuff and then it's not exactly the way he describes it, the whole experience of the book is this one of like, you, you're you laughing, you're wincing, you're, you're inside Holden Caulfield's emotional life, right? And there just hadn't been that much that was like that. But that's how Motherless Brooklyn works as a novel. Like, it opens with I'm messed up. Wind me up, and you're gonna see what happens. And here's the sad state of me. Here's what's crazy about it. Here's what's rough about it. Here's what's kind of beautiful about it. And on the end of page one and a half, you're like, I'm totally bought in. He does that thing that you're trying to do in movies, in films, and so- in in songs, in books. It's the what well, you know the hook. It's like, what's the hook? The hook is like. You've not heard this before. You haven't heard this voice before. You haven't heard this kind of churning description of a fevered mind in this way. And then it and then it all boils up. And the first the first line is like "Eat me, Bailey." You know what I mean? And you just like start to laugh. And it's like um, he just gets you. He gets you inside into this intimacy. And then you think about how. You think about the plot of the book, you can't really remember it. You just remember riding with Lionel, and that's 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 what got me. Every month or couple of months
0: since I read the book and the you know, whenever it came out, I've thought about one of the scenes at The Zendo where um and I'm blanking on the character's name now because it's been a minute, um, even though I reread it partially for for this interview. But where she says uh, she's cleaning and uh, Lionel's like, oh, that sucks. She's like, no, no, no. In my sect, cleaning is a great honor. And for some reason that lodged in my head as just like such a of all the mind fucky ideas in the book, that was the one that held for me. And. Catcher in the Rye never meant anything to me at all. Like I can never see anything of myself or really anyone else in right. that book. Like somehow the guy just seemed to me like a jerk, Holden. <laughs> but in this one, like as an exploration of what people's minds are like, it's like oh yeah, no, yeah. I, 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 I
2: see that. I, I mean, I could go on and on. Like I, we got a lot of time. Yeah, no, but but like as an actor. I mean, I remember my mother saying to me, honey, you can't do that. When I would compulsively, despite myself, start mimicking the tone of people's voices, their accents, right? I was completely compulsively obsessed with the sound, not just of words, but of like what makes an accent an accent. And I I would unbidden start speaking with the accent of like the Korean grocer, you know what I mean? Not in any way other than actually trying to assimilate, right? Like the thing of like trying to connect. And I'm still fascinated by it. I still have a, a, a kind of a zealot-like compulsion to mirror vocally people that I'm um, talking to. and it's And it is a conscious thing in my brain almost all the time to stick with myself, you know what I mean? And not not fall into the vernacular of someone that I'm talking to. And there's so much in the book that describing his brain, the wordplay, you know, to me, I used to like compulsively sort of take songs, change the lyrics to funny alternative versions. But if it wasn't the same number of syllables, like then it was a cheat. And I think the brain is like dancing to its totally own it's having its own conversations. While we're doing this now, we're both thinking other things. Mm-hmm. And that's what that book is about. And yes, his condition is an extreme one. The Tourette's is more extreme in some ways. But as you read it, you're you're just going, oh, my God, like I do this. I talk to myself this way in my head. Or I get fixated on these things, and they bubble and boil. And how do they find outlet? You know what I mean? It's it's so— it's. I think it's one of the better like brain mind melds with a character. That's it, you you mind meld with him and you you know the bit about Prince, the bit the whole bit about music. so good when he's, trying, so to, good. When he's
0: trying to pronounce Prince's symbol.
2: Right. I mean, Le- Letham's ability with
0: language in that book is one of the most singularly impressive things I've ever seen.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 phenomenal. And and the thing is that like when i read it honestly it was a it was greed like actor's greed i was like this is hard great he's a hot mess he's funny he's sad he's smart he's dysfunctional he's like this basket of fantastic paradoxes and how would you even how could you even haul that down into an exterior performance of it how could you do that could you give the audience the inside and the outside at the same—you know what I mean? And there was no high-minded ambition to, like, expand on it or anything like that. It just was like purely could I even do this? But at the same time, as we got talking about it, there does start to become this more analytic confrontation with the reality that the book is an extremely interior experience. And to your point, it's a linguistic experience of such density. That's not a film— Right, that's that's a book, and the transposition of that into film and into a visual medium starts to create demands on it. Can't be the same thing. It just can't be the same thing because it has to. It has to open up. Um, even when you're talking about music, it's like you can't just hear him say that whole thing. You have to see a proxy version of that happen to him. You know what I mean? And that's when you start to get into like, well, what essence do we want to hold on? What's the distilled heart of the whole thing? And what are we going to allow ourselves to springboard away from into a different medium and a different art born of the same emotional core of this character?
0: Yeah, I want to put a pin on that. How do you actually translate that to, to screen and what, yeah. what can make it and what can't? But it seems to me that in the book, um, because a lot of it ends up taking place at a Zen Buddhist monastery, that what you have is this main character whose Tourette's is used as an external manifestation of the Buddhist idea of what the mind is doing all the time. Mm-hmm. And in your movie, you have this beautiful line. And I was looking in the book to see if it was in there, and I, I didn't find it, so maybe you you wrote it. But where Lionel says, uh, it's like a piece of my brain broke off and got a life of its own. And it's joy me for fun. And obviously, it's a much more intense thing in Tourette's. But as a description of just what people's minds are doing all the time, mm-hmm. if you are watching them at all,
2: it's very powerful. I, it is the, um, it's partially like, why is meditating hard, yeah. right? Because you're like, hey, shut up, shut up, shut up. I'm, I want, I I want quiet. I want to clear my mind. I'm not thinking right now. I'm trying, and it's like, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. We're thinking about this. We're thinking about that. Um. It is. It's like you are having a conversation in your head, and the Buddhist concept of being the watcher, of standing to the side of your brain and, and watching it do its thing, that, you know, and this is from the book, the, you know, Bailey, the idea that his head calls him something else so that when he's screaming, eat me, Bailey, he's not saying that. The anarchist in his brain is saying it to him and has named him Bailey. I mean it's so it's so great and bizarre and and it's like it's the literalizing of a thing that's going on for people all the time. And and to your point, I don't have pages and pages and pages of interior meditation to articulate these things and so in the film I have to find a scene in which it's organic for someone to be asking him what it's all about and I have to put it across I have to put it across in a way that's more distilled, right? So the depiction or the way Lionel says is me taking, like, what do I take from the book in all its complexity, you know, and and finding another way of saying it. Do you have, a, a, do you have a
0: mindfulness practice?
2: Yeah. Yeah, and, and it gets really hard when—it's really ironic because, like, did you ever read David Lynch's book— um, about meditation no. called catching the big fish it's really interesting he basically says that all of his most profound creative ideas only come from the stillness of of reaching down really really deep and i think that's true i think i think many 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 things i've solved or come up with in in sleep or in, in meditation Things have, like, emerged to me, and... um, Can you think of an example? um, The idea to ask Tom York to write a song for the movie, I got in half sleep imagining, really weirdly, the character in a scene that is not anything to do with the movie, like on a beach or whatever, and... I had this vision that like there was like Tom York was singing like a Nina Simone kind of a Billy Holiday kind of a ballad, and I was and I the thing that almost woke me up was like Tom's voice is Lionel's musical voice, like that's his Tom's longing and his dissonance the the that's that's Lionel, like that radiohead and Tom have that split, the heart longing, but the mental dissonance, the fracture and the jangle. You know what I mean, and um, and that kind of came to me. What's really weird is that he—I sent him the script, and I asked him about. Well, I know we're jumping around, but 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 he he told me he sent it to me very early in the morning, and he told me that it was a thing that kind of came in his head, feeling like it was out of the past. You know that that felt strangely out of the past to him. The script or his song? No, his song, and there was things in it that. You know, the the Daily Battles was what he called it, which isn't a line, in, wasn't a line in the movie. And again, I was sort of in a state of sleep or quiet. I, I realized like that he had, there was two things in the song, the phrase Daily Battles. And also he has this line in about the other side has no face. And I had this I had been listening to it and the song was making me very emotional. Like it was just triggering emotion in me. And I had this realization that I didn't want to see Alec Baldwin's face. It made me realize like that's a great way to present power that is not where it's supposed to be. There's the election of a mayor, but the person who's really powerful is can't be seen. We we can't even see his face and that I wanted to like do it. And these these things like the flow, and I worked the line daily battles into that scene in the car with with Gugu and Raw, But the, I I think that like the mind just does amazing things in quiet, like it left to its own devices. And it's so weird that it's also antagonistic to the process of getting quiet. It's like there's not even two of you in there. There's like more than two, and one is like the anarchist who's like not letting you get quiet. But if you can get quiet, these other parts of the head start to like calmly sort things out and come up with ideas that aren't noisy. They're really like deep, you know, it's so weird. Like I was once on a retreat and um, you know, you get like 10 minutes to talk to the
0: teachers a day. And I was complaining about this, that there was this part of my head that kept going on the same loop, like was yelling at me about the same thing. And I had this whole fun riff on it. Like, like a subroutine and a bureaucracy when the whole company is decided to go in a different direction and it was like a great line and everybody laughed and you know because it was in this little group of people and then the teacher um and, and I, I had this whole thing about how well it really shows like the concept of you know thoughts are thinking themselves and it's like well you know what if instead of being so antagonistic towards this part of your head and thinking about it as something that is out of your control or there to annoy you you integrated it and thought of it as actually part of the company. And it was actually this incredibly profound moment that really helped me listen to that part too, which is only to say, it was making me think when you were talking about this, that there's a way of calling that part of the head antagonistic, but like, Mm -hmm. is that part of the head antagonistic or are we antagonistic to it?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What's its function? I mean, my brother and I talk about this a lot because he's Super into biology and the biological basis of behavior and um I think that somewhere there was evolutionary advantage in uh having a noisy mind like th- there is we don't we don't have it by accident, you know, and I think um our ability to quiet it on some measure is also something we evolved Have you read um Taleb's book, The Black Swan. Mm-hmm. Did you read that? One? Yeah. He has this riff in that that's real. I've I've always thought about it ever since. We basically is like if we didn't have the ability to filter everything down into the uh, uh, the narrative fallacy, he calls it into a false construct of narrative, we'd be paralyzed. Right? We'd be sitting on the savanna. That hominid creature would sit in paralysis, unable to act because it can't distill anything right and so we have the ability in some sense we couldn't function if we couldn't quiet it all down in a way that's manageable right so we have like we have the like filter capability but then at the same time he talks about how like you know if, if the animal that's looking around and sees the grass is waving and doesn't just go the grass is waving but goes it could be the wind or it could be a predator and so my adrenals fire and i sharpen up and i look more closely that's the what i call the noisy that's the i mean that's the imaginative capability of the brain purposefully imagining problems to fire adrenals and keep us like very sharp right and that's like that's like the part of us where that won't shut up it's like well, I'm supposed. I'm. I have a function here. I have a function. I'm supposed to keep you on your toes. I'm supposed to keep you a little bit ed- on edge, a little bit stressed, because in a world that's threatening, that's good for you. We don't have so much of that around us anymore. So maybe it's that we're we're more antagonistic to it because we don't. We're not as closely connected to the like existential threat scenario that it was born out of. Does it? You know what I mean? Yeah. I haven't thought about it this way, and I'm not at all sure that what I'm about to say is
0: correct. But it's funny, the w- way you put that. So when I came back from that retreat, it took me about two days till I could drive safely. To drive safely? Drive safely, because just the visual input was too intense. Um, like everything was a lot brighter. Um, And I would get much more distracted. There's a particular street in Oakland that has these uh, trees that basically interlock over the street. And it's just, it's beautiful. I've always thought it's beautiful, but it was so beautiful (laughs) that I I realized like, like I had to like put this down and we talk about it as quieting, right? Why can't you make the mind be quiet? But what you're actually doing is quieting part of the mind so you can make a lot of other senses a lot louder, right? I mean, if you think about what mm-hmm. a lot of Buddhist practice is, it is focusing on sensation. Mm-hmm. It is, if you're doing open-eyed work, being actually able to look at what you're looking at, hear mm-hmm. what you're hearing, feel the
2: way your body is hear sitting. Hear what you're hearing has always worked the best for me, by the way. just I, I totally agree. And I find the eyes closed but open ears as a way of quieting the mind by just going, it's, it's. I don't know why that always works the best for me.
0: It's so funny. I, I find the open awareness stuff very difficult, actually. But but it's all to say that we think about it, about it as quieting, but it might be that what that part of the mind is doing is crowding out. That you can't take in that much information all the time, right? I mean, I was thinking about your um, blowing grass on the uh, savanna example, and it's like if you're just sitting there, being like, "That is amazing." Mm -hmm. Every blade of grass is like you can't get anything done. Like put aside whether the it's like being on mushrooms, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so that there's a, a real way in which stories are a way of just filtering information. And we're not quieting things down, we're making them much louder when you uh do that. In the same way that psychedelics makes things much louder, mm-hmm. makes sensation much louder. Uh it's a it's a weird reframe of that.
2: Yes. Uh, and I think like the reason Motherless is so pleasurable, and the reason I think it connects it over into films and stuff like, like Stanley Kowalski in a street cry named Desire is like a distillation. Of hyper masculinity, right? He's Tennessee Williams, who cared a lot about sensitivity versus brutality, personifying what he viewed as like, you know, sort of primitive male brutality, right? And Blanche Dubois is the sensitivity of the feminine that he related to and that in his world he saw broken a lot. Travis Bickle is like a pretty out there or at least at the time seemed pretty out there as a character but he was like this distillation of post-Vietnam kind of, you know, PTSD, malaise or whatever, right? But a lot of times, like, the force of a great performance can take something archetypal and pull it down into being really shockingly real, right? And what I think is Everything we're t- Lionel. I think the reason Lionel grabs in the book and was compelling to me to say, like, you know, can you make this character work as a as an externally realized thing, not just a voice in the head, is that he's heightened his problem. His problems are everything we're saying is that within him is a f- something that happens to everybody. It's the voices in the head. It's the uncontrolled parts of the brain that loop and demand and want to shout and are noisy figuratively or literally and that solve a lot of shit for us but is just we're at war with like you know we're we have a really we have a constant push-pull relationship with our own head right but he's that fully externalized oh that's so interesting and that's why and, and so he's us he's us but he's an extremely heightened version of us and that way we're allowed to laugh and we're allowed to wince and everything because we don't have Tourette syndrome but we get it we get it right and he is us and to me it's like well but can you do that without it can you actually perform that without it seeming ridiculous like come on like this isn't a person this is a this is like an this is an indicated thing can you actually make someone who all that is external, can you also make them seem like a real total human, you know? And I think that when I look at things like, uh, uh, what's the Jim Sheridan film with Dan, my left foot, right? Like Christy Brown was this great artist and poet with uh, cerebral palsy, I assume. And it's a great, it's like a great performance, right? But it's not a great performance because... He convincingly assays the physical condition that he had. It's a great performance because he's a real son of a bitch. He's lusty. He's funny. And he has to grow up, too. It's like he doesn't get a pass on on his evolution as a person in the story just because of that, right? He's not ennobled because he's got that condition. He still has to get somewhere. And that's why... It's it's great. I think
0: that's a good point to stop for for a quick break. We will be right back.
1: Did you know the Tribeca Festival premieres more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program sponsored by Audible is happening June 9th to 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts and live tapings of popular podcasts you know and love. Attend Slow Burn, the hit narrative podcast exploring the Briggs Initiative. Experience an exclusive live taping of Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy as they investigate complex stories of people who've done wrong or been wronged. Or get a vibe check on today's politics, entertainment and news with a live taping of Vibe Check with Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com.
0: So talk to me about the process of actually adapting this because you didn't just adapt the book, you also adapted, as far as I can tell, um, Robert
2: Caro's *The Power Broker* in part. Um, I would be care. I want to be careful. I wouldn't say I adapt. I definitely didn't adapt *The Power Broker* because, like, my story, my right. film- It's a fictional. Yeah, no, story. My, it's totally and my and my film is about um, murders and yeah, that's um fair. I'm and sorry. murders I'm and i'm probably getting you in legal no, no, trouble no, here <laughs> no 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 it's not it's, but it's important cuz it's, it's yeah. murders and rapes and yep. um, dimensions of things that have uh nothing to do with with robert moses at all that have as much to do with and are pulled from uh the language and the specifics of like stories we're hearing in the me too kind of chronicle of of comeuppances with powerful men. You know, there's a lot. There's a mashup of a lot going oh, on. You wrote
0: this in you said the script is finished in 2012, I think. Yeah. The,
2: my, yes. I, I I definitely went in and rewrote and underlined and and pulled from s- certain things that really struck me about things um in in recent years. But the but but it's definitely what we did. And you know fortunately I couldn't. I can't go and do this stuff without talking. I, I told Jonathan like Jonathan and I had our thoughts about why it would be better to set the book in the fifties and not the nineties. Because my what I argued to him was that film is a, is much more literal. We're not our brain. Our brain can read the book and handle that these guys feel like they're in a pocket of Brooklyn that has not changed from the fifties, even though the modern world and Zendo's and stuff is flowing around it. But on film it's one or the other they're either wearing fedoras and they're acting like 50s gumshoes or they're not and if they are and they're in the modern world that can look like irony you know like um you ever see the movie brick brick yeah sure
0: yeah it's it's a funny like counterpoint on that yes. um not not as a contradiction but i never really thought about this but
2: no it's a noir it's a, it's, a, it's 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 not a noir, oh, it's, not a noir. it's a gumshoe it's a it's a high school detective movie
0: but it really forces you in a way i never thought about till you said that There's a constant dissonance, which is enjoyable. The movie leads into it, but you didn't want that constant dissonance. No,
2: because dissonance or irony. And there's—I have one—you know, irony can be super fun. Pulp Fiction is super fun. The Blues Brothers is super fun. You know, like retro cool, like self-conscious, you know, hip stuff. But it's distancing. It's a slice of armor against actual vulnerability because if you're ironic, then you can't be hurt, right? If you're ironic, like it it's not and and I think that the the thing I essentially said to Jonathan was, if this thing is ironic, then it's got a lot of wink wink, and I don't think Lionel's pain is as real he's I think he's more of a figure of ironic amusement, but I didn't like that idea. I liked the idea of Lionel played straight and the empathy for Lionel's real empathy that has dimensions that acknowledges that that it's funny sometimes. He thinks it's funny sometimes, that that it's funny to us in a rueful way sometimes. But sometimes it ain't funny at all. It's real. It's actual suffering, like real suffering, that he's like can't get out of. He isn't that he and he, and and it's lonely because he has no one looking out for him, and he's alone and he's suffering. You know what I mean? And that that was to me a value more than the value of of comedic irony. You know.
0: You're here with a copy of a book that comes out and, and hits the literary world like a bomb. It's a beautiful book. It's National Book Critics Award, the whole thing. And as you adapt it, you build a very different world around it. I mean, you bring in Robert
2: Moses functionally. He's yeah, not call yeah, that the in 50s. The, but
0: you, you, like, how did Moses come in for you?
2: Well, let me put it this way. it's It's sort of a flow of things because I actually felt that going—I wanted to stick tonally to what felt like the— the parts of the book that I liked, the other orphans that he grew up with, they call him Freak Show. I felt like a world in which Tourette's isn't named as such and that people don't know what it is and where guys call another guy Freak Show feels more like the 50s to me than the 90s. And and once you've transposed it to this time, it starts to open up doors because you're not going to do a thing about Zendos and sea urchin trade. And you're also moving more committedly into noir, like into the classical version sense, in, the, in the sense of it. And John, Jonathan's like a real cinephile. He, he really loves those movies, right? And knows them in many ways like better than I do even. And the thing is that what started to tickle at my brain was that the best of those kinds of movies, um, Motherless Brooklyn, the novel, has a great character, and a great backstory for that character. And the plot, I would say most people remember the character more than the plot. The plot is not a commentary. it has it has detail, and it's cool, but it's not it's not about America, like, let's say, right? And I think that noir films do function on a zeitgeisty level. they They serve a purpose that I don't think is a lightweight purpose, which is the best of them, they say there's a there's a narrative of American life that we all invest in and buy into and we're proud of in some measure. And we're on cruise control, ex- assuming it's running the way it's supposed to. But these stories say, hang on a second, like underneath the corner here in the shadows, there's another thing going on that ain't at all what we signed up for. It's the powerful gaming the system, and we're all the ones getting screwed and hurt. And and in a way, as a form, the detective, he sort of stands in for us and goes into the shadow and takes us in there and starts to get annoyed, starts to say, you know what, like the powerful with their dark dealings, they're pissing me off. And that's a very American impulse. And it's a very healthy impulse to say, Will like it, like Willem Dafoe says in the movie, you know, everybody's cruising around calm as a Hindu cow, thinking we live in a democracy, so nothing can happen, right? And it's like that is in fact our cruise control modality. But it's like if we're not paying attention to what's going on, bad, really bad things can happen. I like the idea that that there's in films. I think that's healthy. I think that's really healthy. And I think once we were talking about going to a certain time. Honestly like my feeling was Lionel is such a great character why can't he be as great as Marlowe as like Chandler's Marlowe why can't Lionel be the vehicle to go off into a big part of the american shadow narrative and help us give us the 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 reason and the compulsion to wander into something that's even bigger and darker than the story he went into in the book you know and um happily like jonathan's a really jonathan's just been amazing he's always said to me i wrote my book he's like i wrote my book make him, you know he doesn't have great fealty to the idea that adaptations that are close make good adaptations he cites we were at a film festival he cited all these films i didn't even know where he was like that was a really freewheeling adaptation of this that would have been really bad if they'd stayed close to it. And so I I, I was lucky. I was pretty—I had a hall pass from him, um, and he happens to like those kinds of films as well. And so he was kind of like, I don't want to know. I mean, he was like—he was pretty adventurous in his spirit about it because he just let me have rain to go off and do that.
0: When did Alec Baldwin get cast?
2: um, when I was coming up in New York theater, Alec was doing streetcar on Broadway. And I remember thinking like, it's not even like, phew, that's more, you know, nobody can be as good as Marlon Brando in that. Why would anybody even try? And then I saw it and he was tremendous, like tremendous, like anything you'd ever seen, it was out of your mind. You're like, look at, he just owned it. I felt that way in Glengarry Gary, Glen Ross. I felt, you know, th- this guy's got a mastery of language, like he has a Shakespearean actor's kind of command of language, literally of language and the power of language. And I knew I had written this dark soliloquy at the end, and I I knew I needed someone who's a real New Yorker with real old world, like Lee J. Cobb, power boss, heft, who also can just manhandle language like that. And there's not like a big list of people like that and so he i wrote it's really i wrote lines in this like him saying if second guy wants to blackjack me threatening to move our baseball team then the dodgers can take it on the arches to the fucking coast and i'll get a new team to play ball with me in my stadium and there's not once i get him in saying that in my head i'm like i'm not this, i'm not gonna be happy listening to this come out of anybody else's mouth it's got to be him like that's how i felt but literally when 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 did he sign on to play it There's a reason I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. No, like, uh, so like late 2017.
0: Because it is wild watching him in it. Because Randolph Moses, right? Moses Randolph. Moses Randolph. I'm sorry. It's a, so you're dealing with a New York real estate developer (laughs) who's all about the wielding and use of power, but operates entirely or tries to operate entirely in the shadows, doesn't like to talk, doesn't like to take credit, but- is surrounded with a scary form of hypercompetence. It's a perfect inversion of his SNL Trump. Yes,
2: well, and- I mean, it's weird watching. It's one of those things like, not that many actors have both sides of the Greek mask, like the comedy and the tragedy. Not that many people have the satiric, comedic capacity that Alec does. He's also a really great dramatic actor, like a, a legit, great dramatic actor who other actors give it up for you know what i mean it's like he's he's really admired by other actors and um and he's got real dramatic chops i think alec um i think it's more painful for alec to do sort of the reductive clown than it is i think he's at home more in what he's doing in this film honestly i think it's more true to his deeper gifts and the thing is that that Moses Randolph is as was Robert Moses and other people like him to your point he ain't he ain't a charlatan and a clown and he ain't a showboat he's a he's something scarier he's a genius who masks his power he's he's much more like darth vader cloaking himself in the force and And, by the way, who was a Jedi, I I said to Alec and Willem in this film, you guys are Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader. And I wasn't even remotely being funny. The nature of the relationship is two Jedi Knights who were aligned, powerful in force, determined to fix the universe. And one of them goes totally to the dark side and becomes, you know, a dark lord, a a dark lord. And Obi-Wan Kenobi ends up in rags you know, in the desert looking for a a squire to adopt in a way, you know what I mean? And that's, I I think Alec is like, you know, lethally seductive and he's lethally intimidating too. And I think um, that that's not, you know, our insane clown president. It's not. And it kind of is. I mean, this was the, the part of
0: it that was striking watching that There's a way in which this role is more true to at least a part of Trump than the other Alec Baldwin, Trump is. Um, I mean, at the end, you've got the soliloquy where he talks about power is knowing you can do what you want and no one can stop you. And to the extent that um, Moses hid a brilliance and a power behind a kind of invisibility. Mm -hmm. And Trump hides a certain kind of genius behind a clownishness.
2: Um, And the love
0: of power behind a clown. Well,
2: there, to me, the relish, maybe at the end of that scene you're talking about at the end, I think one of the more grotesque manifestations of too much power is that there there starts to be this kind of unapologetic relish for all that comes with it, right? All the brutal forms of it. Um, And that, I think— you know, people who use language like "I moved on her" as a euphemism for "I assaulted her," they don't believe the rules apply to them anymore. You know what I mean? They just don't. They 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 think and know that they're that that they can get away with stuff because that's vul, vulgar and abusive because nobody can tell them they can't. Well, and, the other
0: people aren't real to them.
2: Yeah. Yeah and and Alex says that too those people are invisible they don't exist in that scene the difference is that to me what we're going through now is bizarrely naked it's out in front it it the dangers of it are so clear and in a lot of ways what noir to me is and what the real Robert Moses and what this literary kind of version of of him that we've created in this film it's 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 In many ways, more dangerous because it's like when people can't see what's going on in America, we're supposed to be able to see where we are supposed to put the power where we think we've invested it in our reps, right? That's the idea. We have the power, and we put our we give it to our proxies. And when when too much of it amasses outside of where it's supposed to be, that's when we're in danger. That's when like the system of an egalitarian democratic society starts to break down and because you've gotten uh, too much power has amassed outside of the system of checks and balances. Tell me what you learned about Tourette's studying to do the role. It's It's so fascinating because there's consistency to the categories of its symptoms. Physical, you could say physical twitches are a component of it vocal tics the inability to put the lid on the impulse to shout inappropriate things obsessive compulsive behavior overlaid over that these are things that people have but the specifics are different in every person and the blend so you you know you you realize there are people who have tourette syndrome and the limits of their expression of it are that they they compulsively blink right hard like and they can't and they can't stop it or they i met a woman who all she does is is actually flex her scalp muscle right and i i know i have a friend in new york he's corporate litigator and in the film i'm doing him he he all he does is stretch his neck and and stretch his jaw out and i don't think most people think anything of it they just sort of looks like he always has a kink in his neck other people have such severe physical constancy; they look like they're doing capoeira. Literally, they can't stop bouncing around and moving and yelping and stuff. And some people, some people don't have the vocal component at all, and some people um, don't have the OCD component. So it's like it's it when when I use the line in the film, it's like an anarchist. It is you 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 like you see people have these completely like personalized expressions of it. And I think to me, what was liberating in that is not is not I don't want to say you can't get it wrong, but you could create you could create a mashup of the things that was true to Lionel and and it and it wasn't like anyone would say, oh well that's crazy. Nobody Nobody does that and that. that. that there's there's no um rules um or patterns to to it. Um so I just I met people and there's good documentaries. There's Oliver Sachs's book um and uh there's a lot there's it's not like it's hard to research tourette's it was a it was strange for me to watch it i actually hadn't
0: known until um looking at it and then thinking about it for and doing a little bit of research for this show that it has such an ocd component um and it struck me watching the film because i had a lot of ocd when i was a kid and I would tap things in groups of fours and I would do mental repetition in groups of fours. And if I saw something that had six, I'd have to do things in fours. And like watching that on screen was actually a pretty intense experience. And I, it had not occurred to me until then that these things had familial relationships between them. They all strike you know, you think about these things as all different, but you know, as I've done more looking into, I mean, there's a lot of connections between depression and anxiety. Just the idea that you have these categories of mental illness that, um, or mental um, function that we think of as different, but a lot of the boundaries are things that we're drawing on them, mm-hmm. um, is an interestingly different way to think about the
2: way the brain works. Yeah. I think, too, isn't it funny the way that certain things in our society, like we became aware, we became more aware of autism and it starts to become classified as its own thing, right? Then people create subtle differentiations. They say Asperger's is different from autism. And then, and then people start using the phrase on the spectrum, right? And then, especially out in here in Silicon Valley and stuff, there starts to be this, I think, kind of wincy tendency, like heroin chic, to sort of say, oh, he's I'm totally on the spectrum or he's on the spectrum. But it's kind of got a a conferred. Yeah. Like positive. Yep. Chic value to it. Right. And I found myself at times going, you want I bite my tongue sometimes like going like. I, you know, there are people who who do have autism or have children who are on the spectrum and like kind of like bragging about your personality traits by saying you know like you're slightly on the spectrum it's like mm, you know what like like find another way to describe it because that that's diminishing to it it's um grabby <laughs> it's like no it, you know and also it's like neuroses isn't that's not the same right and i think there's a little bit of that that goes on when you describe those things like people who are hyper neat don't have ocd like you know what i mean but they'll but there's a thing going on where a lot of people yeah. say oh i'm totally ocd yeah right and it's almost become this like catch all for like n- being neurotic being neat being all these things and it's like no like when people really have it it's it's crippling to a lot of people it's paralyzing to a lot of people and they're not amused by it and they don't like sort of talk about it with as if it's got like sort of a font with a fond kind of quasi backdoor compliment to themselves. It's really it's really weird to me. Those those weird kind of cultural tendencies to seize on a thing and then sort of adopt it. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I mean, the more things become recognized, the more they become an available metaphor for the way we're feeling. I mean, all these things, I guess, to some degree exist on a spectrum, but as, you're, but as you say here, like, there's a real difference in kind between them. Like, people yeah. with anxiety disorders are not people who are anxious. Right. People with exactly. Tourette's are not people who are twitchy. That, um, right. Like, exactly. I, like, the particular form of OCD I had when I was a kid made it, like, I would spend, like, a long time in loops mm-hmm. that were really hard to get out of. Like, it was not fun. Um, and it's not to put myself in there, but there, there's a way in which... Differences of degree become differences of kind. Yep. But at the same time, something I'm very, I'm more sympathetic to maybe is people want there to be, I guess, calling it ungenerously drama in their experience, but also people want their experience taken seriously. Yep. And it's hard inside everybody's own spaceship. And so when the society kind of offers out concepts where it's like, if you attach it to this, mm-hmm. I'm not nervous, I'm anxious. Right. We'll take you seriously. I kind of get why people go in. The other thing where it inverts into a positive trade, as has happened with spectrum stuff, yeah. as you say out here, where it's like, I'm on the spectrum. Therefore, I'm in, a better technologist. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm on the spectrum, which is to say I'm a founder. It's like a very different, like, it's a very different, weird
2: yeah. I dimension. Mean, you're into the world of literally the show Silicon Valley. You know what I yes. mean? You're into like, we're, we're trading this as an asset now. Yes. Um, and uh, that, yeah, that is—and um, also, by the way, it can become a rationale for bad manners, mm-hmm. like antisocial behavior. You know what I mean? Like, no, dude, you're not on the spectrum. You have bad manners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that here. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and you should look people in the eye when you talk to them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And uh, I think those are not the same thing. You know what I mean? Uh, it's it's These things are culturally funny. Uh, But I think that exactly what we're talking about is why I did not want the jokey version of Lionel. Like, I did want you to have moments where you've been allowed to laugh and see that there can be a kind of a, a warmth between people who really know him and him and that he can laugh at it. With Bruce Willis purposefully winding him up by saying words that will trigger him and he's laughing too and saying, Come on, boss, don't, don't, don't wind me up. And you're like, okay, there he has a safe space for this. But when things are going bad, it's like you're in tears for him. Like you're this is not a happy existence. And and I didn't want it protected by irony. And I think um that was harder in the modern world. I, I just think it it was harder to play that straight in in the world, and and um, someone I really respect one time said to me that part of the problem with noir films and the idea of going into the shadow and all these things is that they usually end up cynical. You know, they usually come to a cynical conclusion, which is, "Yep, there is power that has no face, and when you contend with it, Faye Dunaway will get a bullet in the eye and will be dead on the steering wheel, and you will be going." do as little as possible, I should have done as, you know, like that is a dark, dark, dark view. It's like, yup, California is actually owned by people who ripped off everybody else by faking droughts and stealing water and building fortunes and they raped their daughters and you better not mess with them. You know what I mean? Because the way of the world is that these people win. And I sort of felt that if you can see that a person who's afflicted and lonely and has a pretty legitimate reason to say, hey, my my problems are such—you can't ask me to be a hero, too. You know what I mean? If that person can kind of grasp what's going on and realize, like, I don't don't want to be one of the people who looks the other way, and the heroic people around me are not my boss, they're not my friends— they're this, you know, woman fighting for social justice despite the fact that she encounters racism on a daily basis. They're this guy who's given up his whole fucking life to protect people. That's who I want to be like, and I'm going to take responsibility for getting off the fence and getting into it. Then you then you can sort of like take like noir and, and kind of like convert its potence, convert what it— concludes, you know what i mean, you can kind of like say well, who are we going to call heroic? Are we going to call like powerful bullies, you know, heroic and like right now we've got this perverse romance with that idea again, i think. It's kind of shocking to me to see how many people are willing to essentially like stomp their feet and go crazy for unapologetic bullying assertions, you know what i mean? It's like um and it's like if you're in a cultural argument again about like do we like get a hard on for like loudmouths and bullies and we want to be like them or do we care do we do we admire people who find the bandwidth to care about other people that that's that's like we're we're in a pretty big character moment you know what i mean it's but like we're in a
0: big anti-hero age in that way i mean something i was thinking about while you were saying that is that Past couple of years, to relate this a little bit to the Silicon Valley conversation, you had this biography of Steve Jobs come out mm-hmm. that makes him look interpersonally like an unbelievable asshole, but it also makes him this hero, right? Like, yeah, I mean, he might have left a trail of wreckage in the lives of the people closest to him, but he he made the iPhone, and then um, the Social Network comes out, which is a, a movie that I think in actually some unfair ways, given what the licenses it took with a real person's life vilifies Mark Zuckerberg, but the aftermath of that movie, not the place we're living now, but the period of time after that movie, it just made him more and more of a cultural icon. And you actually give the Moses Randolph character, I think, a a speech in this that will make you think twice, that if you can put aside his kind of personal misdeeds for a minute, his whole thing that you're building for the future, Mm Right. That the people you have to care about are the people who come after you and what is going to be remembered. You know, all this little piddling shit we're doing now or like whether or not there are roads and bridges and infrastructure that everybody else builds their life on is the kind of thing that it it gives you pause. So I'm I'm curious for your reflections about why we choose to make heroes out of the people we make heroes of and also why I think oftentimes the people
2: who cultural figures are not trying to make heroes of become seen as heroes really interesting question I mean I it it's um I know um a guy named Yancey Strickler have you ever met Yancey so funny he's coming yeah. on the show in about two weeks okay great so is he gonna talk about his book yeah yeah I read it I ran into Yancey this summer literally we end up staying in the same little Bed and breakfast place by accident. And he's a co-founder of Kickstarter. Kickstarter, for yeah, don't sorry, know. sorry. Yeah. It, y- y- Yancey co-founded Kickstarter. And we realized we had spoken once on the phone because I started a company called Crowdrise that was like Kickstarter, for but for fundraising for nonprofits and charities and stuff. And we had chatted over the phone. And I we when we saw each other, we got talking. And he's written this book um, that I that he, g- he gave me in galleys. Another book I got in galleys, except this time on a PDF. Um, Probably harder to adapt into a movie this one. Yes, it is. But you know what? I've been very struck by it. I've been thinking about it a lot, and I've been thinking a lot about he. I think he's exceedingly accurate in his identification that the, you know, what we have traditionally called materialism, I think he more correctly identifies is that as, that we have put a heroic value in our society on financial maximization. We have basically said, yeah, disruptors and, and technologists and all this kind of crap. But you know what? The truth is whats is what we're really lionizing is financial maximization. And yeah, it's changed the world in some ways and all these things. But we don't talk as much about people who have changed the world in much, much more profound ways and not become multi-billionaires out of it. Like, this is why... I actually, I'm going to present at the Breakthrough Prize thing in a couple of weeks because I think about this a lot. I think about with a lot of, I, there's a mortification to going to award shows for movies when there's a dozen of them a year for the same films. And you're like, there are people doing landmark work that's going to change society, change human health, blah, blah, blah. and they never take a prize if they win the Nobel Prize it happens once in their career. And I think this idea that that people are getting like a big cash prize and and sort of we're se- trying to celebrate their work, yes, I'm for it like I'm for celebrate these people's work right But Yancey's point that I think is really true is that underneath the anti-heroes that we're elevating for what is in some cases essentially like very unhumanistic, antisocial, one might say, unevolved behavior as a human, like we're basically saying, that doesn't matter, man. Do you see the scale of what they built and the money they made doing it? And like the iPhone changed the world and, you know, the things, yes, these things are, are a big deal, but a lot of the value, a lot of what we confer as a heroic value is how rich the person got doing it. And the funny thing is, is that whether it's be you no, know, don't do evil, don't be evil, or all these kinds of things, the the thing is, is that it goes back to like Jack Nicholson in Chinatown saying to John Huston, "How much is enough? How, like, at what point does financial maximization? Do you, how much more of it do you need?" And it's one of the things I admire about what Yancey and those guys did. They they took their company. They could have sold that company for multi billion dollars, and they turned it into a B Corp. And said, "We're never selling it, and it's never going public. It has a mission-driven life, and our investors who support it are going to get it paid out in dividends." And you know, and and and, th- and a lot of people go, Ugh, "They they blew that." You know what I mean? It's like it's like such an admirable decision, but we don't we don't we don't tend in our culture to make heroes out of people who have a service-driven mentality. It was a Taoist line I think about a lot, which is, "What's
0: the difference between what difference between success and failure?" And oftentimes when I'll read these biographies or look at these people's lives, I'm to think that like that success was so unpleasant. Mm. Like that, like the what happened in their families. I remember actually watching the sort of famous Elon Musk Joe Rogan interview, where I think I think it was a little crazy that people got so worked up about Elon Musk smoking pot, but there was this very interesting moment in it earlier. Where Rogan is sort of lionizing him, and it's like you know you're like you know you're like a real life Tony Stark. I mean, and uh, Musk says, "Yeah, but you, I I can't turn it off." It's like you don't want to be me. Like I can't right. turn any yeah. of this off. And that was like an interesting moment of real honesty mm-hmm. and like a pretty yeah, powerful pretty moment awesome. because like, I see this a lot. I mean, I you know my background is in political reporting and so I know a lot of politicians pretty well. I mean, there are some who have kept a balance, but mostly I will look at their lives and like see them like jetting back and forth and never being able to be with their families and spending all these time with like sycophants and mm-hmm. fundraising and the amount of fighting they did to become a U.S. senator, right? And like the amount of triumph on that night. Yeah. And then the lived reality of that life every other day. Yeah. Or to be in the house and be one of 435 and it's like you're a big deal when you go home. The couple days a week you're allowed to be home and then you're running around and, you know, to car, you know, dealership yeah. openings and so on. Just the number of people who seem to me to achieve a kind of success society will credit as success because there's a lot of money or there's prestige. And it's a an ripping failure in their life. Like the what mm-hmm. it takes from them is something they'll never get back. It's just something I try to reflect on
2: a yeah. lot. I mean, uh, forget U.S. senators. It's like there's an interview with, that I read with the Dalai Lama. Where they ask him, like selfishly, is there anything he wants for himself? And he said that he just wants to have a period where he can be a monk, and and he says, and he said, I want to go to a cave and lick my wounds like an animal before I die. And and I think that's like what you're saying. You know, it's like even the Dalai Lama, whose work is not the grasping and clawing of politically craven ambition or money or anything he's you know truly is like moving in the world to to spread compassion and to think in a serious way about the value of contemplative life and all such things he's still exhausted he's still you know uh you're still sensing from him the desire to have quiet where he's allowed to be alone, you know, uh uh him his own basic self. And and that's pretty that was I went, ooh, like when I read that, I was like, wow, he's he's given a lot. Like he's 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 given of himself, like a lot. And if even the Dalai Lama is expressing that exhaustion, it it does make you go what what the hell are we all chasing which is why I'm I'm not here to pr- promote Nancy's book, but I really I'm in the middle of it. I really um, I think by the way, I think Mark Banyoff, who is someone I know out here to um, CEO of Salesforce. yeah, he's he found fa- and founder and CEO of Salesforce but he you know Mark Mark's been I think doing a very impressive for a for a major corporate leader to be in the world saying we cannot have capitalism. That continues to be defined by shareholder value. We have to have stakeholder value. We have to define, you know, we have to say that community, that family, that the quality of life of our employees, and that the environment—that these are equally important baskets of responsibility. That if if we don't reorient the the value system and the hero the heroism, you know, we, we've got real problems. I happen to personally think. For all of—you know, you look back at, like, Ralph Nader, right? And for all of what Ralph Nader, like, you know, the flack he took for the part he played in an outcome in a given election, right? The idea that he's been as marginalized as he had by that against a career of decades and decades of representing consumer interest, meaning human interest, against corporate interest, is is a shame. Like, his— His contribution was tremendous, and I believe he articulated something that's at the root of a lot of what we're saying, which is that we're living in an era where arguably the basile problem under everything is the argument between corporate interest and human interest because that's the root of our environmental problem. It's the root of our healthcare problems. It's the root of our political problems. And in this, you know, in, to your question of why why is this happening, it's like we we are actually in an era where Citizens United has defined a corporation as having the same rights as a person, and that's perverse, sick, like degraded. Will ruin the world, and we have essentially institutionalized it. And in a world where like, there's no such thing as a corporation, corporation is a virtual reality construct that we have allowed, and that literally we license. We license them. They exist by fiat from us. And this notion that they have the same rights as us is absurd and obscene. And to the degree that we want to solve any of these problems, we've got to elevate human interest over corporate interest. Like we we have to take back, or else we're headed for Skynet, like literally. <laughs> I really the Matrix, Copper Tops. Like and I think I think that's embedded in this film. You know, I mean to me it's like that idea when we talk again about the idea of like what it's in Tom's song, Tom wrote in the song Daily Battles, like the other side has no face. It really struck me. It's like, that is what it feels like. That is what is so terrifying is this idea of, of a matrix of, of power around us that, I mean, in in Genghis Khan's era, you knew who the, you knew where it was. There's no equivocation, you know what I mean? And now, but now we're living like in a, we're, we're playing a, a, a game, a multiplayer game where we thought we had a certain set of rules baked in that prioritized, like, that was advancing the world toward a, a humanist idea of, like, how we organize ourselves. And, you know, we're we're in danger if we, like, smoke our own shit <laughs> um, and believe that that's, like— that that's some permanent airbag around us? Yeah. Like, you know. It's hard not to. I mean, so I had Nader on the show about a year ago. You and, did? Yeah. Wow. And I'm going to go
0: back and find it. Was that? It
2: how, was great. Um,
0: and it was the first time I really had to grapple with his work. Um, Because, like, my – the thing I decided in that, actually a little bit to your point, was that we were not going to talk about 2000. Mm-hmm. He knows, like – there's nothing I have to say that other people haven't said mm-hmm. or that he would answer that. So it was just like we're not no, doing I that. No, I admire
2: that cuz sometimes it's like you don't
0: You don't want to have the same conversation yeah, endlessly. I did not understand until I did that how much of a philosopher he was and is. Um how much of his work is actually rooted in a philosophy of what is the good life what matters and doesn't in the mm-hmm. way people relate to each other. I'm a vegan, and he does. He actually has written a number of books about animal rights. Um, he has actually a fictional book, uh, Imagining Animals Could Talk and Tell Us mm-hmm. What We Are Doing to Them. And he's very much um, something I'd actually never run into before, or had rarely run into, which is he's functionally a political monk. He's lived an almost spiritual life in politics. And I totally agree. And it actually is in, like, he is monkish. He's very ascetic. He never married. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff about him, but is very rooted in, in you know, sort of like the, like in a different way, the, the Dalai Lama, like there's a kind of personal asceticism that then ladders up so that you don't get pulled along to to the point you were just making into the like riches and incentives that capture most of the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's how the rest of it gets you because like the whole society is telling you like buy into this and it requires a tremendous amount of personal discipline to remain separate enough so that you don't buy into it so you can continue seeing like what it's actually asking you to buy into
2: yeah and it's funny like i think this weekend is the 20 year since fight club came out i think it came out yeah. in october mid-october 2000 yeah i was seeing some, some reassessments of it online yeah what well, the funny thing is though is that i i think that that's the, the idea of like the lines in that that I think really resonated for people of like is you know is that what a man looks like is this am I am I am I being conformed to a thing that everybody's fear down inside is like that they are being conformed to something else to a world that is really just trying to sell them shit you know um, and and I think uh, you know it's funny looking back on that because the it is about the allure. When you feel anesthetized of nihilism, right, which applies to the Taliban, it applies to white supremacy, it applies to um, t- incel. That's I would not call the Taliban or white
0: supremacy nihilism. Like, isn't what they're offering meaning that people don't feel like they have elsewhere? It's like um, they're, they're an alternative to nihilism, a bad one. But. Well,
2: yes, yes, but the it's the feeling of marginalization, I think, leads to the— indoctrination well i I would call i would um i would let me put it this way i i think al-qaeda is nihilistic insofar as like a suicide you know suicide plane sending people on planes to suicide themselves into buildings is a nihilistic act right um it's it's it is like ripped down it's almost Nietzschean. it's like we have to tear down things for them to be rebuilt right um and i i guess you could if you're getting really deep on it, i guess you could say that maybe nihilism true nihilism doesn't even envision anything on the other side is that mm-hmm. kind of what you're saying right yeah and and there's and the, they're N. saying
0: that they're saying, they're saying there's something on the other something
2: side. so big right that you are annihilated within
0: that commitment right
2: right right um but whereas, but i yeah i think that the idea of of uh necessary destruction or Of um, is a lot of these, let's call them negative, negative impulses toward a um, that that are driven by, by feeling marginalized. I don't think it's blink and you'll miss it. I think it's like really intrinsic to that particular story. It's like it's the entire last act of that film, is that he goes, wait a second, wait a second. This is going way too far. It was sexy for a minute, but we're we're gonna hurt people, right? And he goes a little crazy to literally blow away his own his own dark voice in his head. And at the end, he is holding hands with the girl and saying like, "Um, that was a weird moment, but it, it's sort of like I think we're gonna be okay." You know what I mean? Or like, I, I there's there's I think. Much like the end of the graduate, I think that it 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 sort of like sometimes you have to go a little crazy to figure out to find the path, you know what I mean, that you want to be on. And and um I never looked at that as I I always thought there was like a a journey down and back up, you know what I mean? And um there's some stuff that just it's what we were talking about. It just goes um you know. Blow away your oppressors and we'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Although now I'm I'm so embarrassed. I didn't think of Fight Club as the example
0: when I was talking about um works of art where the public decides to lionize and make a hero out of someone who's not the hero, right? Or like the wrong part of the hero. Right. I mean, Fight right. Club has become, and Brad Pitt's character in that has become right. this icon. Right. Um that last act. Right gets a little bit forgotten.
2: Yeah, no, I mean it's it's um, nuance is a is a dare, right? I mean, the fact that there are white supremacists who think that American history X affirms them does not mean that it does. That's the laziness and the magical thinking and convenience of a certain viewer that's not paying attention to what's pretty explicit in a thing, right? But you have to. Deal with the fact that like that, it's possible. It's possible for that to be misunderstood or, or cherry picked for a certain iconic moment um, out of context, right? But by the way, Bruce Springsteen went through this with uh, "Born in the USA," right? There's no question about whether "Born in the USA" is a patriotic song or a soldier's protest song. It's a soldier's protest song it's about abandonment of people who have served and and the emptiness of it and all of it and but because it had a rousing you know chorus fucking Ronald Reagan goes out and tries to claim it and Bruce was like I have to stop singing this goddamn song because these guys are are co-opting it and taking it away from me and now when he plays it he plays it as a dirge you know he doesn't if you see it in like the 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 way he did it on Broadway, it's it's dark as hell, and there's no mistaking what it's about. So you run that risk. I mean, you run that risk if you when there's a, when there's nuance in a thing, people who are not being nuanced can misuse or misread. But I don't think that's an argument for not for not trying to.
0: No, I wouldn't make that. No I wouldn't idea. take the argument to there. Yeah.
2: Um, one thing, though, that is interesting about those two movies is
0: that they're uh, American History X and Fight Club is those are movies that are real touchstones for people now, not uh, not just in the sense of lionization, but actually in the sense of trying to understand, right? White supremacists have had a powerful, at least cultural, comeback in a certain way. Um, and. The you know snowflake masculinity, uh, the feeling of white men being pushed to the margins, and sort of having an eruption of aggression and like a re-engagement of a certain kind of I don't want I don't want to call the I call the toxic masculinity um, as a reaction. I think they're both considered almost uh, like canonical explanations. I'm curious, given that you inhabited those mindsets for those roles like long before that became move from fringe to mainstream if it's changed or influenced how you see some of that Donald Trump or Jordan Peterson or some of the movements that we, you know, alt-right or any of it that you see coming up. I'm not equating those with each other, but they all have strands of those films in them. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, so does The Joker.
2: So does Joker. I saw someone describe that The the Joker is like um, triumph of the will for the incel community. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, That's amazing. Which uh is uh is is provocative. Um it's it's challenging. I mean, you know, it's like, well, if you have a confidence not only in in what the intention was, but in looking at the thing objectively even from the present, that there's a hard-to-miss message in a thing. I mean, what you're really what you're saying is, in a way, what do you do about the peop- people who are missing the message? No, I,
0: I'm actually I, asking it differently. Not not in terms of people missing the message of those movies, but more in terms of those. I think the power of those movies, putting aside the people who lionize them, the power of those movies now is that they they seem to be early in reflecting a repressed emotional experience mm. that has burst forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that now, like if you made one of them now, it would seem too on the nose. Mm. But having made them then, um, in terms of delivering a kind of empathy or understanding for some of the cultural drivers drivers that we're living through now, I'm curious if it taught you anything or made you reflect on
2: anything. Um, Well... American History X is is interesting because David McKenna, who wrote it, and I, as we we worked on it together for a long time, trying to, um, we were driven, he wrote this very atmospheric kind of genre thing, and I, if I brought something to it, I think it was that I came to him and said, David, you, I think unintentionally, you've, you've, you've sketched what's actually kind of like an american macbeth or othello you've you've drawn you've got the armature here of a much more of something that i think is more classical than you think it is and and we talked a lot about that and kind of came together around the idea that that if we stripped away stuff that was originally in it about drug dealing and all this kind of stuff that and boiled it down that what it was really about was like anger being a force that destroys you, that if you cannot release anger, if you if anger dominates you, it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter how much you love your family, it doesn't how matter what a great leader you could have been, it will destroy your life. And to approach it like very much, I don't want to sound really academic, but like the idea, the Shakespearean the Greek idea of the tragic flaw, right? Of like, so that you get a prescriptive story where an audience gets it, right? Gets that he couldn't release his rage; or his rage was misdirected, and and it and it destroyed his life, right? Um, and in and the fact that we, so in a way, it was like that was the thing, and then the vehicle was, well, what kind of rage is around? You know, okay, race hate, you know xenophobia, these things, which weren't not present in 1998, but they certainly like weren't as naked and open in the mainstream as they are now. And to us, like the skinhead thing, it seemed like, well, this this is wild because it's it's marginal. It feels marginal. It's in the margins. It's got kind of a warrior ethos, a misdirected warrior ethos to it. And we felt like it was the kind of thing also that literally lent itself to transformation. You could see someone going from this back to being more empathetic and more human and, and all these things. But um, I think we just were, on that one, we were interested in just the really basic idea of, of the corrosive effect of anger, right? Not so much um, toxic masculinity and not even, not even really... The feeling of feeling thwarted in the way that a lot of what we're talking about it has to do men feeling thwarted, men feeling emasculated, men feeling thing. I think this was more like, you know, this is a person who's allowed—he's had a loss in his life. He's lost his father, and he's aim—he's aiming his anger at the wrong targets, and he's let racism and rage become his defining thing. And what's, what's kind of—what's just— so disturbing looking back on that is not is not anything like i think it was on target and i think it was emotionally archetypal in good powerful ways i think the large majority the film got used in amnesty international screenings about like you know like you know healing and stuff like that it it, i don't think i don't think on the whole that film was misinterpreted i think it was yeah i think that's right but but i i think it was largely appreciated for its cathartic message right but what's amazing is to see the degree to which it's not like those things became more marginal they became more mainstream like nobody if you made the movie what's so crazy is if you tried to make the movie today he'd have to be wearing like dockers and a um and and you know a a, an untucket shirt it's (laughs) it's like what now it's it's like It's so unapologetic. Um,
0: Yeah, like a Pepe the Frog patch on his backpack.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's it's. um, I mean, if you asked people in 1998, if we'd end up with um, those kinds of ideas being mainstreamed, such that like frat boy culture doesn't think they have to apologize for it, uh, and can cavalierly be making like Sig Heil salute photos for their stupid frat boy yearbooks like you know i think people would be like yeah right like that's not where we're headed you know um it's it's rather astonishing i think the the snapback we're experiencing the like the notion that people talk about american exceptionalism i think one of the things they don't talk about is just that we think we we think well we are we elected barack obama twice we are the shining city on the hill we are moving forward into um you know these things and it's like finding out like like the snapback to the realization that I don't think anything close to a majority, but something like twenty five, thirty percent of this country is willing to like get really, really friggin' excited about a a bully, braggart, phony. You know what I mean? Because he he gives them license for their ugliest versions of themselves. Like it's like there's ooh, the anarchist
0: in in our heads and in our it's disconcerting. right. I mean the. The split personalities are everywhere.
2: Yeah, I hate when people talk about what kind of country we are. It's like we're we're a lot of things, like all at the same time. I, yeah, exactly. I know. And this is what I'm saying: the idea that we've entertained to ourselves that the distribution of personality types and everything here is is radically more different than anywhere else is a is a fantasy. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it's. I mean, and this gets around to sort of that. Like like noir, let's say. Um, there's things that also do have to be acknowledged, though, which is that you can make a com- you can make commentary in this country in safety. You still can you can contend with these things openly uh, in ways that in a lot of parts of the world you can't. We would have to slip a lot farther to really be on par with what progressive humanists in Russia or China or hungry, or you know are dealing with those people ha- are fighting yeah. much harder fights much 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 harder fights for basic freedoms of expression than than we are and um and in some sense like that's why it's worth taking a stab to me at films that get at these things you know on, in some measure because they they it is an opportunity to say like We need to pay attention. We got to keep paying attention. You know, there's politicians who can be ringing the bell. There's filmmakers who can be ringing the bell. There's podcasts. You know, there's like, we need consciousness. Like we need. You're welcome, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No, but we need, (laughs) we need everybody. We need lawyers doing it. We need, you know, we need, we don't need Xanax and high fructose corn syrup. We really don't. And I think, and I do think we get a lot, we get a lot in popular entertainment that is not so subtly essentially saying, "Let us put this re- into your vein, make you check out. We'll show you other people saving the world. We'll sell you some expensive sugar while you're doing it. We'll anesthetize you and pretty much encourage your passivity. Except that we do want you to go out and buy a version of what you saw here, etc. This is not like helping. It, this is this is not helping. It's not it's not creating like a." an enlightened populace, and it's not creating like a generation of activists, you know, it's not creating, I, I I, think what Jim, I think Avatar is a tremendous piece of work, I really do, because I think it essentially creates a mythic value system around integration with nature versus industrial extraction, and, it, and for a lot of kids who watched that movie, they were like, I don't want to cut down a tree, I don't want to fucking, I want to be a Na'vi, I don't want to be any, I want any part of that. You know what I mean? And that's powerful. He's I, making like four more of those yeah, right now, and right? by the way, I can tell you firsthand, like, Jim doesn't need the money. Jim ain't trying to financ- financially maximize. He wants to continue to indoctrinate around the idea that, that there is like mythic heroism in care for environment, mm-hmm. and the destruction of environment is going to send us literally into a living hell. And I think... Um, and I admire that. All right. Let, let, let's take a quick break right here, and then we'll be right back. You founded a media analytics company. <laughs> yeah, I did. T- tell me what it does and why. Um, well, that company in particular, we, we do a lot of things, but we, we use sophisticated, very cutting-edge data science and machine learning technology to create original data streams of original data-based signal around the efficacy of TV advertising, basically. Um, we would assert that, like, Nielsen ratings are a paleolithic tool and, like, we are a gamma knife, you know, of clarity about what what is happening in the matrix of, like, advertising. And, um... We do it through a lot of very sophisticated and proprietary kind of uh, modes of of building really, really, really large data sets around things like very esoteric forms of analyzing search and other traceable open source like activities that people do. So, and we can line it up with indiv- We can line it up to such a tight level of time resolution that we can tell you that how much this individual ad dropped at this specific time on this network drove immediate activity by people that actually has like a finance-grade statistical correlation with their intent to purchase a thing. Why did you want to do that? I
0: mean, something that struck me about it, and I come from a world where I was early on a lot of media analytics. and have, to like put my cards on the table, become more and more worried about what they did to my (laughs) industry Um, and what they did even in some ways to my own work. And uh, I I applaud the total absence of good data about who is doing what in podcasts when. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Because it's made a messier, I think more interesting form. And like I so associate you with work that it feels to me, like if you were just like running off of people's analytics, like people would have never greenlit. But I've also heard you talk about how you think this can, create space for things that don't currently exist so i'd be curious to hear how you like how you think about that yeah
2: um an honest answer would would have a yin and a yang in it on the one hand i guess um through other parts of my life and in things i had an awareness i've been involved in work in in data and data science stuff that as an investor as think that I am I was aware of methodologies and cutting-edge technology that are doing rather remarkable things in terms of a capacity to predictively analyze financial markets or other types of things. And um, there's a part of me that just, like, I'm interested in the world, and and sometimes I see certain things, and in the same way I'll, like, think of a story and it'll click together in my head, I couldn't help but notice with a friend and partner of mine in the work he was doing that I'd been a backer of there was an app that there was like an application of it within within this huge space of media data where you have gigantic companies like like Nielsen that are essentially like floating on cruise control, and where nobody on either side of the equation likes the methodology that's being used to price what they buy and sell in terms of advertising. it's like, you sit there and you just go, it's sort of like Uber and the taxi system. I really, really don't like the taxi system. And Uber has lots of things that can be better about it. But I know for sure it's fucking better than the taxi system in all the ways I care about, right? In looking at this, I was like, it's partly just this compulsion in me to go, There's an opportunity—this is wild. Like, no one is doing anything about this, and we could do it. And it's kind of just a compulsive, creative impulse. It should exist. It should exist. And also, honestly, like, this is—this is an ego. It's just um, the game of going, like, hey, can this—we could do this. Like, we know the people. We could do this, and wouldn't it be fun? It's fun to start things. It's fun— the the phase of things where things feel like half baked and and really really like like semi fraudulent is kind of hilarious and fun and um that's why there's a funny show so that's why Silicon Valley is yeah. a funny show right it is actually the the friendships and ideas and daring to try is kind of is fun. Um, it's fun whether you're, like, saying I want to make a an epic period detective movie with a theoretic guy at the center, you know, and people's eyes cross and they go, those two, th- you know, those don't go together. Um, or, like, hey, you know, there's this whole thing where, like, we could take this thing you've been doing and we could measure this better and wouldn't it be really crazy to prove that you can do much better than... These big things that are out there that nobody likes, right? And and some of it is just some of it is just the pure kind of um, like dare of it in a way in me. Um, and also, uh, honestly, I'm not immune to the same things that, Yancey, that we were talking about in Yancey's book. Part of me goes, like, Nielsen is worth you know 16 billion dollars market cap or something on a on a crappy product. That nobody likes. It's like, even a small piece of that, like, I-, I could do a lot of good in the world <laughs> with, with um. there's a lot of things I would like, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to fund a lot of really cool um, environmental and theater company work and yeah. all this stuff. And I just sort of go, you know, mm, it, it is a little bit that thing of, um, I will say not so much for myself, but there's a lot of good I feel like I could do in the world if I got paid off for building a data company and selling it, right? That's that's true. That's just true. Uh, That that is in your head when you do these things. But an authentic other part of it to me is that as a person who does bang my head against the wall trying to figure out how to get someone to give me some resources to make my little stories, right, which I don't take for granted at all. I, I really appreciate that there's risk. The people who have backed me are like... I can, I'll can. i never be able to thank them enough for helping me make this movie. And there's a lot of people who took a big risk to do this, to help me do this. I want them to get it back. I don't want other people to be scared to back other creators, whether it's a studio or an independent financier or whatever. And the problem is is there, there's a lot of risk in it. Um, and some of the risk comes from the severe inefficiency of how marketing dollars are spent. And the severe inefficiency is because... A lot of people have they they have to spend a lot of money with because there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to actually sort of convert into people going to see a thing or buying a thing or whatever, right? And when you can see that in previous times, some of the reason that marketing money cost, it, it costs so much to market a movie is an uncertainty about whether the money we're spending on television is working. You realize that that um, this is not BS. This is real. If you can create better, better information and better efficiency, that trickles down in a very real way. If a studio, let's say, goes, "I'll be damned," we can we can by spending smart and by Edward making that movie for one tenth of like. You know the budget of the Irishman. If we, if he can make, if he can do that, and we can spend smart, and we can make an original adult drama about a trick thing go over and do well with it, then we have a we have a way to do these things. We don't have to be so scared of these things, and it changes. And by the way, Netflix is proof of this. Netflix figured out a business model that doesn't require so much risk from spray and pray marketing, right? And as a result. There's no platform in the world that's more dynamically open to un, non-traditional content. You know what I mean? They're, they'll give PTA and Tom York money to make a 15-minute dance video, right? Um, and that's and that's really cool. Really cool. You want you want that kind of boldness in the system. You want people to believe that they can support non-traditional voices and non-traditional stories. And if, and if the risk matrix in what they have to spend to put it out comes down, more will get done. That is, yeah. that is like a proof. But also, honestly, because more and more creators get value out of their own work only if it clears profitability. Like when we make Grand Budapest Hotel, everybody does it for scale. And I'm talking like SAG Weekly Scale and West did it for scale. And everybody only makes money on the back end if it does well. Right. And that's a function, too, of if they do a ruinously inefficient spend, nobody's going to see anything. Right. So creators tend to do better financially if these things are done smarter and 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 not wastefully. And so I want to see that get better. I really do. And I think there are ways that it can get better. I think lots of smart people, people tend to demonize like the, the people in the system. But like at Warner Brothers, Right now, everybody's working their frigging ass off to help me get this movie out and have people show up. And what they're doing is smarter than it's ever been at any time in the history of movies, and a lot of it has to do with data. Not a lot of it, all of it. All of it has to do with the war room in there right now is more sophisticated by 100x than it was 10 years ago. It's young people, they're, tr- they're really trying to support filmmakers, do well for the company, and data is a massive, massive part of, of that, and especially when it comes to something like mine that's not gonna open at 93 million like the Joker. You know, so it, it matters, it matters, and there's a, I know there's a downside to it, I know what you're getting at, which is like, do we want people to be, do we want to have that much information about people It's it's tricky, really tricky. It's
0: more for me, I mean, and this is not a a question so much about your company, it's more it's just something I'm fascinated by. It seems to me that what will often happen with data is that you become, the more of it you get, the more you forget that you don't have. And so, like, in my industry, um, everybody has Chartbeat, which is this thing where you can see, like, how many people are reading an article at any given moment. And then, like, behind Chartbeat, you have Google Analytics and so on. And we have all this data about, like, who's reading what and why and how they got there and nothing, nothing about did they like it? What did mm-hmm. they take from it? Like, did they learn anything? We have even tried weird things like, do you want to like, put a little quiz at the end of art? Right. Like, no, right. But nobody wants homework when they finish something. But the thing that then happens is that uh, people become so obsessive about the things they can measure that they really lose sight of what they can't. And when an industry does it collectively, if you're the first couple of movers in there, huge advantage because it turns out there's insights in the data and you can do amazing things with those insights and like, it's great. But then as time goes on um, and everybody gets like the, like, then it just becomes this like commodification of like what you're measuring and like what you think of the audience. And it creates this sameness that, I don't know, to, to some of Yancey's work, uh, mm-hmm. which I'm, I'm not actually... Um, finished the book yet. So I don't want to comment on it too much. But there's a way in which I often think one of the problems for capitalism right now, and one of the reasons there's been so much backlash on it, is not that it's failing, but that it's succeeding too much and that it's getting too efficient. That I actually wonder if capitalism can survive this much data and this much efficiency because. I've started to like just believe that inefficiency is a place that judgment and sort of more human values can sit mm-hmm. and that when things get too efficient, they become um, very inhuman and it's hard for people to get out of that. Now, it may be that we're just very early in the data revolution and that we're going to get like much richer things. But I don't know, like I always think about it like Wall Street is a great example of just High-speed trading is this wonderful, like reductio ad absurdum, yeah. of what good data can and can't do you, because you've just moved to something where they're competing on data. They don't even know why they're competing or what it is telling them or what's going on. But I, I don't know. I just think a lot of the interesting stuff, and then a lot of the people actually that we end up lionizing now in 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 a lot of markets are people who, at some crucial moment, are able to, are willing to say, "Yeah, the data doesn't tell me this, but I think." And this is not a push on your company. Um, it's more just something that I've been struggling with myself as somebody who founded an organization that did really well thinking hard about data and being ahead of a lot of competitors on it. And, you know, now when I look at some of our dysfunctions, not just for Fox, but for media in general, um, I root them in that, that like we over-interpreted things and then, or interpreted them correctly. But then like everybody in the industry ran down that, path mm-hmm. and now we kind of all look back and we're like well shit <laughs> yeah like it all got too fast and it got a little too crazy uh and
2: you know uh some of i think the political si- system and situation we see around us as a result it is not to keep taking back to movies but i think everything you're saying is is <laughs> it's like why the matrix is an authentically great movie in my yes. view i really mean it yeah because, i just watched it the other night actually because the idea of all those green you know that moment when he comes and sits by Joey Pantoliano and he sort of startles him and he looks and he goes, It's beautiful, isn't it? And he's like and you realize like it's it's like this great cinematic depiction of the idea that the total complexity of the world is falling past in this waterfall of information, right? And that in fact it's gone so far that it's a synthesis. Like, the the information has become, like, a total reality or that they're able to drop around people, you know? And, and I think um, it's going to be— the, I mean, it's really— My friend uh, Bennett Miller, he's a wonderful filmmaker. He, you know, he directed uh, Capote and Moneyball and Foxcatcher and probably, like, my favorite documentary ever made about New York City. It's called The Cruise. I tell everybody, like, you have to see this film. He's making for HBO right now this eight- or ten-hour documentary series on technology and consciousness and whether everything that we're doing is in any way leading toward, like, humanity having a deeper experience Um, and and whether—where is it really taking us, you know what I mean? It's almost like Kevin Kelly's really— cool books but like writ larger and he's been talking to to people all over the world, spiritual people and technology people and everything and I think it's the question, I mean apart apart from whether, apart from the really macro question of whether we're going to completely destroy the biosphere that we're living in, which is really question number one, you know on all the rest of it I think it is like is any of this stuff going to is this stuff going to enslave us or is it going to liberate us? It's like it's really hard to know, and also it's it's just it's so hard to prognosticate because no generation has ever done a particularly good job at imagining the future that's even 25 years around the corner. you know what I mean they do somewhat, but it, but things change so fast that the truth is we can probably hardly imagine what some of these outcomes are going to be, and it's like I, I'm terrified of VR like I when we I talk- tell everybody I'm more afraid of the VR dystopia than the AI dystopia. Yeah. It's long-running view of mine. Well, and if they combine together, we're done. We're done. <laughs> well, then we're fucked. We're done. Then we are Then we are honest to God, like, in the Matrix. I think I feel like it's like it may not be in the back of the head yet, but I, I do feel the little tastes of of the power of what's coming that I've seen and talking about the things we've talked about, about how, you know, you take, like, sort of, like, the Fight Club, you know, the, the things Fight Club's supo- exploring, the sense of the sameness of everything, the boredom of life, the ennui of, like... All places coming to look the same, and you know, single serving life, as they say. And the thing is, just like if that starts, to, if that has to compete with strapping on um, a thing, and and if people see what's coming, like you can see a generation of people just going, just plug me in, man. I don't want to come out of here. Yep. I have no interest in coming out here. We can't get out of our phones. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they suck. We we can Like compared to what is possible in VR even right now. I know.
0: Just that the rigs are expensive.
2: And, it's, and it and it and it it is really not hard for me to see a generation of people who are like half Wally, you know, half uh things where they just don't move anymore. They're like sedentary and tripping out on truly fantastic experiences. You know what I mean? Uh I don't even know what that, I don't even know what's going on in that world, like, what what is gonna, they're gonna, it's gonna be like, it's gonna have to get combined with some, like, that episode of the Black Mirror where people are in gyms because they're just earning energy credits, you know, it's like people are gonna, it's gonna have to figure out a way that what people are doing within VR is moving their bodies enough that they're generating, like, like energy and um and somehow, like, they are copper tops. Like they are, they are just, just feed them, feed them their VR so that we can milk them for their movement. I
0: think it's a good place to bridge to our very non VR uh, final question that I always ask, which is putting aside all the digital. Um, what are three books you've read that
2: have influenced you and you'd recommend to people? Recently, or just like my just or your just just favorites? Just mm. Three books you love. I read uh, William Finnegan's Barbarian Days, which. Um, I was late, too, because I'm, I'm a surfer. I surf, and it's, like, one of my, my most blissful things that I do. It's a meditation that I love. And that memoir, you know, I'm not—I I can't say that it was—it's, it's like, for everybody because it has a lot to do with surfing. But at the same time, it's, like, it's such an unbelievable rebuttal to everything that we're talking about being scary. It's, like, it it it's like a portrait of— a way to spend your youth that's really really so it it made me tearful at times cuz i was like everyone should get to read this when they're 18 years old cuz you'd make the right choices literally you wouldn't you wouldn't worry about achievement at the wrong time in your life you'd 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 use your youth in the zen of of experiencing the world and and beauty and your body and it's an incredible meditation on youth um, and the right way to spend it, I think. So I, that one affected me a lot recently, even though it's it's pretty deep into surfing. <laughs> um, I like, uh, I love Exupery's books about flying, wind, sand, and stars. I don't know if you've ever read that one. That's also one of my favorite sort of books about like just finding your life and your bliss in doing a thing. Um, I like Stephen Batchelor's book about Buddhism called uh, "Buddhism Without Belief." It's it's like a, an hour and a half read, and I think it's probably one of the best articulations of Dharma, not of non non metaphysical, non religious understanding of what just the practice of Dharma is in terms of an existential tool for peace, like in in your. Life. It's really, really well articulated. It's almost like, like to me, if if anybody's interested in like what's the value in Buddhism, totally separated from, or of Dharma practice separated completely from any notion of believing in any kind of like, you know, religious metaphysical reality. It's as good as I've ever read. Edward Norton. Thank you very much.
0: Pleasure. That is a show. Uh, thank you, of course, to Edward Norton for for taking the time. That was great. I really enjoyed it, actually. Um, and thank you of course to all of you for taking the time if you enjoy the show if you enjoy the show please take a moment and rate us on Apple Podcasts I know you hear this from podcast posts all the time but it really helps and it it means a lot um, or send the show if you've already rated us to a friend a family member this is how we grow uh, it means a lot to me when you do it uh, you can always email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com uh, thank you to Jeffrey Geld for engineering and producing this one to Roger Karma for researching it the Ezra Klein Show as always a Vox Media podcast production